Welcome to Media Path. I am Louise Palenker. And I'm Fritz Coleman. We are here to take you down some really excellent media pathways today. We're going to explore all of your obsessions, all of our obsessions, and uh, maybe uh, develop and grow some healthy new ones. Uh, first of all, I'm going to go to Fritz and say, like, what have you been absorbing this week? Well, you know, I thought a lot about this, Wheezy, before I did it, because this is a word that might scare people, but I think we have to face it head on these days, and the word is fascism, and there's a fantastic new book about it. I, I would not be drawn to a book entitled Fascism until I heard the author of this book speak about it, and I'll tell you about it. It's written by Jason Stanley. It's called How Fascism Works, The Politics of Us and Them. Now, he's a scholar of propaganda at Yale University, a renowned philosopher. He's the child of refugees from World War II Europe. He studies how democratic societies are vulnerable to fascism. Now, I put a PBS interview link up there so you can watch and see uh, how much sense this man makes. The bulk of this book is the author going through the 10 pillars of fascism, and he's looked at fascism over 100 years. You know, we haven't just evolved into this frame of mind that we're in right now. It's kind of slowly evolved over time. And, and how we in America are falling into it in the current climate. It's been a slow build, but we're here. He makes clear the immense danger of underestimating the political tactics being used right now. That's why we really can't avoid them any longer. Now, I'm not going to do all of them, but here are a few of the 10 pillars of fascism. More and more, we adhere to the language of us and them. We do that every day. It's Black Lives Matter against a, a white extremists. It's this big chasm between politics and the culture war. Us and them is in the news every day. Another one, exploiting the mythic version of our past. For instance, right now, the fight over leaving Confederate statues in the South in place because it's, quote, part of our history. Another one, anti-intellectualism against experts. We're seeing that right now with Trump and the administration denouncing COVID experts. Another one, ranting about law and order and inferring uh, that minorities are all criminals. I mean, say no more. And I, you know, uh, uh, and all 10 are, are parallel the current political attitude. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I just think that, that we're at a time now where we're experiencing really the first full-on populist president. There have been populists in the past, George Wallace, Huey Long. We've been exposed to populist politics. But George Wallace only got 15% of the vote, which was a lot back then. But this is the first time we've had a populist president leaning toward authoritarianism, leaning toward fascism. So as a discussion for people who care about the future of the country, Weez, I, I, I don't think you can avoid the topic anymore. And if you're interested in this topic, and we hope you are, there are two other good books. Former Secretary of State Madeleine Albright's book called Fascism, A Warning. Her family escaped the Nazis during World War II. She's written a great book about it. And one other one, Anatomy of Fascism by Robert O. Paxton. I just think it's uh, something that uh, we, we, we've got we've to raise our consciousness about. 
We need to take a hard look at it. I think this was always his intention. He had some like oddly specific talking points when he ran in 2016 that included dismantling NATO. Like why would Donald Trump know what NATO stands for? He he just, I think he he had marching orders. I think he's a, a useful idiot. He's a tool of Putin. They look for for people who have very low moral standards and a very high opinion of themselves to turn. And then they, they kind of dangle things like you could build Russia, you could build a Trump Tower in Moscow. All of that stuff is a dangle because they know that this guy's going to go for it. And then they install him as president and he's helping with this kind of fascist movement, which was taking place in Europe ahead of Trump. And now Putin has Trump installed and he's by design one thing after another, everything that you rattled off, these aren't things that would be his original thoughts. He just wants to be rich and famous. No, it's so, Putin's foreign policy. It's all exactly the way he wants it. As as Nancy says, all roads lead to Putin and it's it's mm -hmm. it's oddly specific what his talking points will be. It's sometimes and he's got the great puppet master Stephen Miller there coming up with all the philosophical framework for this stuff so he can put it into words. And I think fascism takes on and takes hold where people are scared, where people feel disenfranchised, where people feel like their voice isn't being heard, where they have grievance. And it, it, that's where they, it, can, it can take root, and then it becomes this, this whole schism between people that want a constitutional, a constitutional democratic republic and for people who want law and order, which really just means white people and no one's scaring me. And so we're at that kind of like tipping point right now where, where people have to pay attention and, and watch what's going on and be a, a part of what holds on to our uh, our democracy, democracies throughout the world are always a delicate balance. You know, giving people uh, giving people fair and free elections or representative democracy, it's always a delicate balance because everyone has their own idea of what that should mean. And over dinner tables, we argue about these issues and we have healthy arguments, but those, those arguments in America have become unhealthy. And you even hear the president saying us and them. He's not the president of all of us, and that's the way he's behaving. So I wanted to point out a Twitter thread uh, from Michael McFall, and he also points out the warning signs of fascism in, in his Twitter thread. So you can follow Michael McFall on Twitter for more about this. It's happening in real time. All you have to do is just pay attention. He was the uh, one-time ambassador to Russia for the mm -hmm. United States. He and he's well. been raising the cautionary flags ever since the beginning of the Trump administration. Well, he uh, he, he was trying so connection. he was trying so hard to launch a uh, representative democracy in Russia and he he did his utmost and because he was always fascinated with uh, with Russia and the history of Russia and you know giving those folks a chance at it but it uh, once Putin was installed after Yeltsin it was just hopeless because that guy was going to use Soviet tools so what's interesting is he was using tools from the far left to flip his country far right and to me the extremes are are just different views of the same problem which is where the bully is in power and the people yep. don't have a voice and they yep. use the use the tools of their power to ensure their reelection, uh, and we're we're heading there quickly, and we need to right the ship. So it's all important stuff. And so for more fun, Fritz, you wanted to talk about women in film. 
Yeah. And this will be kind of a cool lead into our great guest today who knows mm-hmm. a lot about uh, stars in Hollywood, female stars especially. But uh, I'm going to recommend the 14-part documentary that starts tonight, the night we're recording this, on TCM. It's called Women Make Film. It's a history of women in film and their great achievements. It's 100 films, 100 filmmakers, 12 decades, and they go through the whole gamut. Some of the recent ones, Sofia Coppola, Ava DuVernay, uh, including Elaine May, one of the great writers of Nichols and May. Even uh, one of my favorite documentaries of all time, I think I might have watched this at your house, called Harlan County, USA, Wheezy, about the blue-collar struggle, which really explains Trumpism uh, by a woman by the name of Barbara Koppel. And uh, and I'm recommending this. It starts tonight. I think the first one will air at 5 o'clock tonight, and we're recording this on Tuesday, but it runs 14 episodes and then followed by uh, films that were done by women. And I think it's a seminal time in uh, the history of film, and you'll learn a lot. Some you're aware of, some you weren't. There's some great surprises in there about how long. Women have been directing films, you know, since the silent era. People didn't know that. But you know, I have directed a film, Fritz. Am I? Am I know I, you did, and it was spectacular. Am I in this? I'm not sure. I haven't. Did they? Did they <laughs> miss me? A, well, they should. They, <laughs> they should, because you did a great job. Well, you would be in the Barbara Coppelton category, which is a female documentarians, because right. you did the Calso movie, which was spectacular. So and before, uh, yes, go ahead. Because if you were going to praise me, sure. I'll pay you some more compliments, but I have to <laughs> So before we go to uh, to our guest, I uh, I watched this documentary because he had written about it in, in his book. And I was like, ooh, that sounds good. So it's called Wait for Your Laugh, uh, Rosemarie. So it's about Rosemarie, who stars, who stars on the Dick Van Dyke show. But her career is like 97 years, years long and healthy. And she starts as a little three-year-old who had just this magnificent talent. And then she gets kind of caught up in show business and that, hey, look how it recommends my movie. Wait, scroll down, Thomas. Look, if you like Rosemary, you'll also like the works of Louise Palanker. <laughs> Castles, the family band. Oh, and I'm right, right next to Lucy and Desi. This is awesome. Okay, I, I just remembered the trailer I wanted to do for your movie. What's that? The beautiful thing about the Calso movie is this, and I went through a part of the process of making this movie with Wheezy. The Cowsills was a great slice of Americana at a certain time in American musical history. But it also deconstructs a family. And we're going to talk about that with Mary Tyler Moore today. Mm -hmm. The, The squeaky, beautiful, sunny aspect of the veneer of what these people presented on TV, but the dark reality of what was going on in their family life. It's a wonderful film, very, very emotional, and I I highly recommend it. Yes, a lot of uh, uh, show people's lives serve as a metaphor, you know, which is why we feel so drawn to them. Uh, But with Rosemary, she she was this just superbly talented human. And... uh, she she goes on, she's a child star, and she's able to continue her career into adult life, which not a lot of child stars are, are quite so blessed, I guess, to have their career continue, because I'm not saying they're not capable. They're, they certainly were talented enough to be famous at 10. They're capable. But uh, her career continues. She's on, the, she's on the Dick Van Dyke show, which pretty much sets her up for life. But thing is, she and Mary did not really get along. So I can't wait to talk dish, about that. Yep. Hella dish you're going to love. And uh, before we get to Herbie, I'm just going to mention one more thing because I think it's really important in this in this time. 
that we be conscientious about this. Uh, Jim Gaffigan had remained apolitical, but during the RNC convention, he could no longer keep his thoughts away from his fingers. And he tweeted, look, Trumpers, I get it. As a kid, I was a Cubs fan, and I know you stick by your team no matter what, but he's a traitor and a con man who doesn't care about you. Deep down, you know it. I'm sure you enjoy pissing people off. He didn't actually spell out the word pissing. But you know Trump is a liar and a criminal. And then this escalates. And where he didn't write the word pissing, later on in the evening, fuck Lou Holtz. Biden is a Catholic in name only compared to who? How many abortions did Trump pay for? How many women has he raped? How many times did he pull this shit he did in Ukraine? Wake up, he's a crook and a con man. And so I would like to encourage any public figure with a large rural red state following who believes that our constitutional democratic republic is at risk to take a stance. State your truth. Yes, you may lose some fans, but you will do so attempting to save their lives. It's I just I got to tell urgent. you, man, uh, uh, he, he, uh, like Brian Regan, these guys made an industry out of being family friendly. You go to their concerts, there'll be 10 year olds in the audience and 90 year olds and everybody's laughing. They're warm and simple and easy to understand sort of the Bill Cosby philosophy of stand-up comedy. This was a brave act on his part. And I don't know how many people he will alienate in this, but I just thought it was a bellwether moment in the situation we find ourselves in, how brave for him and I, I back up what you said. We need more bravery in this. Hopefully, time there'll of be division. more people that he illuminates and informs and enriches. And, and so, right before we bring in Herbie, I think we're all three of us in agreement that we have to mention the work, the career of Chadwick Boseman. So, if you have not yet seen Forty Two, Jackie the Jackie Robinson movie, Marshall, Thurgood Marshall movie, Black Panther, and Get On Up, James Brown, and Chadwick Boseman's commencement speech at at Howard University, where he talks about taking the harder path, taking the harder road, which may or which will ultimately bring you more pride and more purpose. The key words being pride and purpose. Go see those films, celebrate his life and how much of it he shared with us that we're blessed to have had. And with that, we're going to welcome Herbie Pilato. Herbie J. I'm getting it all wrong. It's like there's a Tyler yeah. in the middle of Moore. You wouldn't just say Mary Moore. Who's that? Herbie J. Pilato is a writer, producer, performer, and entertainment executive who has worked on several television shows, including Bravo's hit series, The 100 Greatest TV Characters, and Bewitched, The E! True Hollywood Story. Herbie J.'s long list of top-selling, critically acclaimed pop culture media tie-in books include... Are you ready, Thomas, with your trigger finger? Because this guy has written a lot of books. The newly published Mary, the Mary Tyler Moore story, Dashing, Daring, and Debonair, TV's top male icons from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Is Hugh Beaumont in there? He's my favorite. Hugh he, Beaumont? No, he's oh, not. damn it. All right, write a new book. He's mentioned. He's mentioned. He's mentioned, okay. <laughs> uh, Glamour, Gidgets, and The Girl Next Door. The Essential Elizabeth Montgomery, A Guide to Her Magical Performances. I love that title. Twitch Upon a Star, hey. The Bewitched Life and Career of Elizabeth Montgomery. I guess you're a little obsessed with her. Yeah. <laughs> a little, more than a little. The Bionic Book, The Kung Fu Book of Kane, and NBC and Me, My Life as a Page in a Book. And Herbie, I join you as a Studio Page alumni. I did not write a book, but I did write an unpublished Tiger Beat Magazine article, now available on Facebook. 
of being a page? Yes, because I, oh. I, I called Tiger Beat. Oh, I was a very industrious young person. I called Tiger Beat and I said, I'm sitting here, I'm working every day in the middle of all these teen idols. Would you like me to write about it? And I got someone on the phone who said, you know, write a sample article. So I made it exciting. It was about a prize winner who came with Michael Damien to the studio to get to see a taping of the John Davidson show with all these teen stars, the Facts of Life kids, the Different Strokes kids, the Give Me a Break kids. Uh, who else was there? Glenn Scarpelli, one day at a time. And I wrote my little article, but I just think I needed more scandal. It needed to be a little more like delicious yeah. because it, I found it in a drawer, but it, no, it had never been published. Now your book, was that the first book you wrote, the, your book about being a page? No, actually the first book was The Bewitched Book, which was about the show. And then I followed that up with the Kung Fu Book of Cain, then the Kung Fu Book of, Kung Fu Book of Wisdom, and then Bewitched Forever, which was a rewrite of the Bewitch book. So tell me about your childhood obsession. Were you, was that your show? Was that your jam? Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, the 1960s grew up in inner city, Rochester, New York. Uh, you know, the way I explain it essentially is I was a cute little kid. I was bullied a lot. And so like many people in the 60s, we all had our reasons to, to escape. And, and so I escaped into television and, and loved Bewitch, loved Elizabeth Montgomery. Yeah, of course, who didn't at the time. And, um, you know, I just was, obsessed with not just so much the magic which was fun but i i realized that there was something else going on between those characters they love each other despite their differences and she loved him for who he was and not for what he could buy her well for who he was until he became a completely different person <laughs> yeah in the second year correct yeah <laughs> but you know i'm gonna go with um dick york yeah, 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 a lot of people do i mean dick york was amazing in the role and you know dick Sargent did a a fantastic job. Yeah. But, you know, how do you replace somebody who is so iconic? It was very difficult for him to do that. It was a, it was a tough space. Uh, so um, let's talk about Mary Tyler Moore for a moment. Um, your book documents Mary's difficult childhood, her alcoholic mother, distant father, childhood sexual abuse, diabetes, plastic surgery, her own alcoholism, her near obsessive love of animals, her troubled marriages, including her complicated relationship with Grant Tinker, the tragic loss of her son, her brother and her sister, all intersecting with, as Fritz uh, said earlier, her sunny and inspiring public image. Who, in fact, was Mary Tyler Moore? Can you can you give that a paragraph, or is it does it need a whole book like you did? Well, <laughs> she was a, a complicated person. She was a good person. I mean, you don't do what she did for the Ju Juvenile Diabetes Foundation for animals and be a bad person. But she was complicated and she wasn't always the nicest person. And she admitted that, you know, people would come up to her all the time and say, oh, I loved Mary Richards on, on the Mary Tyler Moore show. I wish I could be like her. And she would say, yeah, so do I. <laughs> <laughs> so she was real straightforward about that. But um, she just, you know, like so many uh, actors and actresses and very similar to Elizabeth Montgomery in many ways, which is one of the reasons why I did the book is a follow up to switch upon the stars. When you're an actor, you're not a regular person, okay? You don't lead a regular life. And it's not as though she had more issues than the average person, even though she really did, but her issues were, you know, exacerbated and, and magnified because you're in the public eye. And this happens all the time. I mean, you can't sneeze, especially now today with social media. So she was this very, very talented, um, multi-talented human being 
who wanted to go beyond what she did and whatever she did was never really enough for her, which kind of sort of probably uh, went back to her demanding father, which is what Elizabeth Montgomery had as well. Yeah, early she, in your book, I'm sorry, we No, go ahead, Fritzi. Early in your book, you, you talk about the fact that she suffered from a very common malady among performers, and that was that she just craved approval of all sorts, from her family, from her friends, from food, ultimately from wine, and from drugs. It was that black hole that many of us suffer trying to find the approval of strangers. And I, I what I found uh, really interesting about your book, and you do a parallel between... Um, her and Doris Day, for what I mentioned earlier, you know, their whole rep, their whole show business image was the sunny, perfect American female, but there was an extreme 180-degree dark side to both of their lives, and they did have that in common. And later on, when they fashioned the Mary Tyler Moore show lightly after the Doris Day show, their lives sort of intersected in a spiritual way there. Yeah, well, and actually, the, the merit, one of the reasons why you had mentioned, um, you know, that that uh, Rosemary did not get along with Mary Tyler Moore, one of the reasons that she really, um, Rosemary came to really dislike her is that she felt the Mary Tyler Moore show was really a takeoff on Sally Rogers, who the character that Rosemary played in the Dick Van Dyke show. Um, so there was that parallel, too. Um, ultimately, they did become friends and they made peace with each other. Uh, for the Dick Van Dyke show reunion that they did later on, which is really one of the worst TV movies I've ever seen in my life. Um, <laughs> or TV reunion movies, anyway. Because um, it was just so hard to watch because, number one, Mary, strangely, was not playing Laura Petrie. She was playing Mary Richards, married to Rob Petrie. Mm. You know? Very, she couldn't find her voice. And she couldn't find her voice because we couldn't find her face. The face that she had in that reunion had been, you know, destroyed by plastic surgery. And she admitted that she had too much plastic surgery, but she didn't stop. And there was this self-hatred again, Fritz, what you were saying about, you know, the, the need for acceptance. She mm-hmm. was adorable as she was. She had mm-hmm. the most beautiful full cheeks, you know, early on in her life that she felt wasn't good enough, and she took them away, like 1991, when she did a show called Annie McGuire, which was on CBS. And you look, and she was thin from diabetes. Some diabetics, you either gain weight or you lose it or you can't gain it. With Mary, that was her her issue. So then she takes away her cheek or uh, her chipmunk cheeks, the adorable cheeks, and replaces them with these, uh, you know, elegant cheeks that did not look well on her. In addition to the numerous teeth implants that she had. So, wow. so it, was just, it was just very, very hard to watch that reunion. It was called the Dick Van Dyke Show reunion um, for several different reasons. And one of them was because it wasn't Mary Tyler Moore that we fell in love with. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. it was, so that was kind of unsettling for people that loved someone and would maybe even you miss seeing her face, but also concerned, because what does that imply? What does that mean? But I wanted to point out something else interesting that, that I found in your book, which is that when Mary came of age in the 50s, she she somehow felt that uh, the only the escape that she had from her family was to start another family. So she was actually working quite a bit by 18. She could have simply moved out, 
But by 19, she was a mother, and she was not yet emotionally prepared to be a mother. She was a person who had so much professional and creative drive, and she was constantly conflicted about it all. She then goes on to become Mary Richards, a fictional creation who inspired so many of us to reach for our dreams ahead of or instead of marriage and motherhood. So it feels like Mary made her mistakes so that we wouldn't have to. Well, I mean, these things are not planned out. <laughs> you know, I don't think that everybody sat around the uh, the creation table and they were coming to, uh, you know, bring the Mary Tyler Moore show together and say, hey, we're going to change, you know, uh, the, the, the view of women um, in the world and we're going to inspire. I don't think that's what they set out to do, but that's exactly what they did, um, along with, obviously, the women's liberation movement. But that... That TV show happened because ultimately Mary returned to television in a TV special called Dick Van Dyke and the Other Woman, which he essentially gave to her um, because she had left the Dick Van Dyke show. And a lot of people don't know this, but it was really because of Mary Tyler Moore that the Dick Van Dyke show ended. Dick Van Dyke probably would have done another few seasons. They could have gone into color. Carl Reiner creator. Uh, probably would have done it, but Mary wanted to move on into movies. And Grant Tinker, who had been, by then become her husband and was managing a career, Grant knew television, but he didn't know movies. And they made a lot of bad movie choices, the last of which was Change of Habit with Elvis Presley as a surgeon and Mary as a nun. So <laughs> it might work or it might not. <laughs> that kind of didn't work. So anyway, her movie career, her movies just failed. I mean, she did one hit, and that was Thoroughly Modern Millie, which essentially though was still Julie Andrews' film. So in 1969, Dick Van Dyke um, invites her back to television. Everybody loves seeing them together again, back on the tube where they belong. Because there's certain people that can't really do all the stage, TV, film. And when you do a TV show, you have to be very likable and it's very intimate and it's very different than film. Mm -hmm. And we loved seeing these two old family members together. CBS loved her. They said, give her the show. And that's how the Marriage of the Moore show began. Herbie, you, you invoked the name of Grant Tinker. I just want to talk about him for a minute because I worked with him. He was a brilliant, and you, you, you put your finger right on. He was a brilliant analyst of television. He was a big statistician. He was a data guy. He was one of the first guys to do the Q scores and analyze personalities and find out who America liked. He was brilliant and uh, using all that data to, to, to cast the Mary Tyler Moore show. Yes. But he also ran NBC, and his brilliance at NBC was the fact that he worked under the philosophy that you have to give a show an opportunity to find its audience. So the two examples that he was famous for were St. Elsewhere and Hill Street Blues. And those shows didn't do well at first, but he sat on them and he let them have two, two and a half seasons before they found their audience and became these iconic TV shows. These days, if a show tanks after two episodes, they pull it right out of the schedule. Television is so much different now, but he was one of the last guys to work on gut instinct. And I always, everybody that worked at the network at that time had so much respect for him for sort of working that way. It doesn't happen now. Absolutely. I mean, they're, they're taking shows off every two weeks at that time. 
And, yeah. and, and he stopped that. And he, of course, every show has to find its voice, has to find its, its rhythm. And he, yes, he gave, he gave time to that. And he knew television. When Mary left Mary Tyler Moore's show and wanted to do variety, he said, no, don't do it. You know, Carol mm-hmm. Burnett just finished her 11-year historic run. You can't get any better than that. I mean, the variety show by that time was changing anyway. No one was really caring about variety shows, but Mary wanted to do it because she always wanted to be a musical uh, star um, on screen. And in many ways, she really did that with the Defend Dyke show. There's so many great episodes where Rob and Laura sang and danced. It's just magical when they got together. But by 1978, when she wanted to do the variety, it tanked, and then they tried to reboot it. Uh, with after three episodes and that second version tanked, and then Mary and Grant tanked. And usually, not always, but usually, when um, a, a married couple in the industry, if the producer, male or female, star, they get married, if they're doing a show together, more times than not, that show ends and then the marriage ends because it's a business partnership. Not all of them do that. Not That's all so of them interesting. do that. But it happened with Marion Grant, Elizabeth Montgomery and William Asher, Carol Burnett to some extent, and Joel Hamilton, Sonny and Cher. Um, so I have to say, wow. her, 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 uh, it's somewhat surprising to read about all of the failures because that is not how any of us thinks of Mary. We simply do not think about something that didn't do well. We only think about all of her successes, her, the overall presence that she that she presented to us was it was just Mary. And so the stuff that she did was so good that it buoyed and sustained anything that maybe wasn't as critically well received. Yeah, she and, and she did a show called Mary. Well, she did the Mary Tellemore Hour, which was changed to Mary. But then she did a second Mary in 1985 or 86 where she brought the, uh, the sitcom format back to TV with her. And it was um, James Frantino and, and the young actress from Married with Children, I can't think of her name, forgive me, uh, played the Rhoda-type character. So uh, James Frantino played the Lou Grant-type character. So Mary, in 1985, was essentially an edgier version of the Mary Tyler Moore show. But she hated it. She hated it. Everybody loved it. Everybody thought it was fine. I thought it was fine. I loved that one. It was it was hilarious. It was different. And there's a line in that movie that I still quote. Her ex husband calls, and um, she says, "Oh, I'm fine. My life is rich and full," (laughs) 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 which is not a thing that you would just casually say. It's like she had it loaded. But I just thought that was adorable. Yeah, yeah. Hey, Herbie, continue. I'm sorry. No, and she ended that show. CBS didn't want She ended it. So she was not happy with it. But unfortunately, I mean, everybody else was. I mean, it was written by, you know, Ken Levine, great, fantastic writer. Yeah. But but she ended it. You know, one time she did, I mean, she had some failures in film. And then she was, uh, had a lukewarm career on Broadway. But she did surprise people. Uh, in a role that was way against type, which was Ordinary People with Robert Redford. Yeah. And the dark parallel, she's had so many dark parallels in her life, but the dark parallel was that that movie was about what happens to the fabric of a family mourning the death of a child, when in fact, 
at the exact moment that movie was occurring, she was experiencing the death of her son, Richie. And uh, it's pretty hard to get your head around how that must have played. Yeah, it, it, his death, Richie's death, happened right when the show, uh, the, the movie premiered. Um, I don't think it was happening. It didn't happen while she was making the movie, but when the movie mm. premiered. But the dark side that she had, I mean, many people, when they saw Ordinary People, they thought, oh, yeah, okay, that's the Maritella Moore that I know. You know, the dark Maritella Moore. And, and Robert Redford cast her in that role because they were neighbors in Malibu on the beach. And he would look at her all the time and say, I wonder if she had a dark side. I wonder if she has a dark side. So he went up to her and, he, you know, he, one of those days on the beach and, and cast her because of that. But she was, you know, it's funny. People say, oh, well, when you do a dramatic role, you can really show your talent. It is no easy feat, and you know this, Fritz, to make people laugh. I mean, Carol Burnett made people laugh for 11 years on the Carol Burnett show before the Gary Morris show. Mary Tyler Moore made people laugh on the Dick Van Dyke show and the Mary Tyler Moore show for years. And then she does a little TV movie called First You Cry, where she plays a real-life um, um, breast cancer uh, survivor, Betty Rowland. And they call her an actress because she, do, she does drama. I mean, come on. Really... Uh, I, I have acted in my life. It is a lot tougher to make yeah. people laugh than it is to make them cry. So I, she admitted she admitted that she was not funny. What made people laugh about her was she was a great reactor to other people being funny, mm -hmm. yes. like Dick Van Dyke and Rosemary and those folks. And she certainly had great timing. She yeah. knew the rhythms mm -hmm. of comedy. Mm -hmm. Now, your book is so very highly researched, Herbie. So tell us a little bit about that and who you especially enjoyed getting to, to visit with. Well, thank you very much. Um, I wanted to make this book, number one, the best book I ever wrote. Because, I mean, I've, I've, I was a young writer, you know, in the, in the 90s when I first started out. And, and I was in love with my subjects. And I knew Elizabeth, and it was very hard for me to sit back and write about her objectively. I did not know Mary. So I really, really wanted to take an objective view. And there had been other books in the 80s about her, some biographies, and then she wrote her own. But there has never been a book that covered her entire life, um, her entire career, even the last 10 years of her life, which she never wrote about, that I wanted to cover. So I really wanted to give a good picture to stand back. And I didn't want to be salacious, because that's not my MO either. Okay, I'm not into that, but I am into telling the truth. And I, but to do so, hopefully, with, with dignity and respect, because I believe in karma, number one. And number two, <laughs> it, it doesn't serve any purpose to write mean, hurtful, mean-spirited uh, uh, books or biographies. You have to tell the truth, but if you tell the truth in a respectful and dign dignified way, I think you, you, you reach a, far, uh, a wider audience anyway. Would you like to hear about my own personal encounter with Mary Tyler Moore? I yes. absolutely would. Yes, I, I do have one. So uh, I'm with Jimmy Brogan, comedian, and we attend a, a party that Paula Poundstone is throwing to celebrate the adoption of her children. Gotcha. So gotcha. the kids, so she decided to rent out a playground area of a school. And so it's all outdoors and the kids, all the kids, it was a family party and all the kids could come and play on the, the playground equipment and the swings and, and what have you. And we see Mary Tyler Moore and her husband, Robert Levine, 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 Levine. 
Levine. We see them. And I said to Jimmy, I said, we're going over. And uh, because I'm not going to have an opportunity to interact with Mary Tyler Moore and, and not take it. So we walked over. And I do not remember any of the details of the conversation. I just remember that it was very warm and very natural. Mm. It was just like talking to a friend and you walked away thinking that's exactly what an encounter with Mary Tyler Moore should feel like. It just feels mm. like a nice warm memory. Um, she was Paul celebrating, Paul, you know, with, she was friends with Paula and she was celebrating the adoption of the kids and, and she was just there to do that with everybody. I had a very similar circumstance, Wheezy, and this mm. is not a besting thing, I, but I just want you to, to know about it for its similarity. Mm -hmm. So I emceed an American Diabetes Association function that was held on the front steps of the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion. She was sort of the figurehead of that organization the latter part of her life. And I just got to meet her for a second. And I, she just looked into your eyes. I, I didn't find it to be... Um, uh, all warm and gentle. I just saw this. Uh, it was warm, but it was also very melancholy. And it might have been a uh, a time in her life when she was, you know, struggling physically or whatever. But she was just so approachable, and you know, she was one of those things that the biggest stars have, which is the ability to make you feel like you're the only person in the room. But I looked in her eyes; it was just a little bit of sadness in her eyes, and it might have been some of her physical problems. Were, oh, were in her she was. She gave she me her was a sad person. I mean, it's all there's to it. She was a very sad person. Let's put it this way. She wasn't really a happy person, you know, yeah. and that makes me sad. And it made me sad in writing the book. Um, but her story was so compelling that I just, again, as with Elizabeth, that I knew I was the one that wanted to tell it because I felt that if somebody else would have written this book, they wouldn't have told it with as much as respect um, as I did, you know. She loved each and every one of her husbands, you know. She she truly, truly did. And she adored Robert Levine. He dedicated uh, his life to her. And they and that and that marriage lasted. Okay, so maybe Grant Tinker's marriage didn't last. And whether it was poorly business-related or not, I'm not saying it was, but if it possibly was. And the first marriage was she was just too young. And she always admitted her flaws. She always admitted that she could have been a better mother, and she wished that she had been a better mother. Um, she wished that she wouldn't uh, keep on getting the plastic surgery, but she kept on doing it. You know, I mean, I really believe... That's an addiction, too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I really believe that had she not had so much surgery, she would be alive today. Because when you have diabetes, and when you are an mm -hmm. alcoholic, getting constant elective Plastic surgery is not a good thing. Any mm -hmm. kind of surgery is tough on the body. But, but you know, she was con her body was compromised as it was. So it's just, it's just very sad. I think what Fritz was saying about how she was, she felt compelled to please people. I think she may have also felt compelled to please herself when she looked in the mirror. Did, did she mm -hmm. like what she saw? And she, you know, she was a magnificent looking woman, but our faces do change as we age. And it's, it's, it can be hard for all of us. It's part of the, part of the challenge of being alive is being able to accept all, all, all the changes that life brings to you. And, it, and I guess if you think you could maybe uh, change the change, <laughs> there's that temptation to want to go ahead and do that. Well, it, it's insanity. You know, I mean, I look at, I'm all for looking as great as you can look. 
You know, um, I, I may consider a hair transplant one day myself, okay? But it, it, you take it to the Michael Jackson level of, of surgery, there's, there's something not right. Mm -hmm. And she did not like the way she looked. Ed Asner told me that. They did a movie years later after the Mary Tyler Moore show where he was uh, the, the star and executive producer. And, you know, the, the, that, the roles really changed because on the Mary Tyler Moore show, she was the star and his boss and off screen. And now that it switched. So she didn't like that, number one, that mm -hmm. now she was in a kind of a subservient role. But uh, she didn't like the film either. And she didn't like the film mostly because, Ed Ezra told me, that she didn't like the way she looked. Mm -hmm. So she set out to sabotage that movie, The Passport, which she did with Mary's show and which she did with New York News, which was a drama series that she did in like 1995 where she had flaming red hair. I mean, which is a whole other thing. It's like, oh my gosh, okay, we've got the new teeth implants, we've got the new cheekbones, and now we have the new short red flaming hair. Come on. It was it was overwhelming for the audience. May I say yeah. something uh, extremely provocative and controversial? Sure. I loved the Mary and Rhoda movie. Oh my gosh. I loved it. You're kidding. That is very controversial. <laughs> I just loved, I loved seeing them together. And I wasn't expecting it to be the same. I just drank it in. Okay. It, I, all right. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to hurt you. <laughs> I, I, to me, all right, the Dick Van Dyke Show reunion is like the worst TV movie ever. And Mary and Rhoda is the second worst TV movie reunion. Ever. <laughs> and in my opinion. And let okay. me one. Elaborate. When you do a TV reunion movie, okay, you have to go back to the original way things were done. And you have to kind of like mimic that. You certainly want to bring a different edge to it. You want to make things a little more contemporary. But Marion Rhoda was like, what? Is this the <laughs> universe? You're filming this like a movie. It was, the TV show was done in front of an audience. There was, you know, there was a stage in the studio. And now we're going on location? I'm sorry. It was throwing everybody. <laughs> and it was actually a vector pilot. Because it started out as a half hour to come in front of an audience. And then they said, oh, let's make it a movie. And then Mary and, and um, Valerie were partners on it. And it did so okay uh, that they decided not to move forward. And that's another thing. Valerie Harper and Mary, and this is really the first time I'm saying this, they loved each other dearly, but they didn't always get along. And that's okay. I mean, how many dear friends do you have or dear family members do you have in your life? That you don't always get along with. I it's mean, me and Fritz. Me and Fritz. <laughs> Come on. We're fighting right now. Put up a, a great veneer. Hey, Herbie, you, uh, I want to, I just want to, I want to put her, before we get too far along, into television and cultural history. You draw a great arc in your book about during the Dick Van Dyke show, Censors and producers and network executives were all overmanaging how America perceived her. They wanted to make sure that she fit into what was the accepted template of an American housewife and not wander outside those lines, being subservient and happy and, you know, the, 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 the wonderful homemaker. Only pants then, once an episode. Yeah, there we go. And the and the arc goes to the Mary Richards show, which was, and I think that was why women connected with it. 
It was uh, the emancipation of women in their careers and from bad marriages and in personal relationships. That was a huge arc that she carved in American cultural history. And she's thought of kind of an iconic terms of having broken that ceiling for women in jobs, in entertainment and everywhere. Yeah, when they when they conceived originally the Mary Tyler Moore show, they had Mary Richards be divorced. And, and there were test markets and conversations and studio conversations with executives that, wait a minute, you can't have Mary Tyler Moore play a divorce day because that's going to look like she divorced the Dick, or Dick Van Dyke when, from the Dick Van Dyke show. We can't have that. So ultimately what they did is they made her just break up with um, her fiancé um, and, and move, move from wherever she was to uh, Minneapolis and start a new life. I would love to know from you, because I know I was inspired watching Mary as a child, how many uh, women of note that you mention in your book will will point to Mary Tyler Moore as being significantly inspirational to them? Can you name some of them? Oh, my gosh. Number one is Oprah Winfrey. I mean, she she became she got into journalism because Mary Richards played this associate producer of a news show on, you know, the fictional WJM-TV uh, in Minneapolis. And, and she, you know, I mean, there was even one point where Oprah had the entire cast of the Marriage of the Moore show on her show. She recreated the, the apartment. Did you see that? Yes. <laughs> she recreated the Mary Richards apartment. And then she even did a new opening, Oprah going and throwing her head up into the air. Just amazing. It was just beautiful. So absolutely. Uh, Oprah Winfrey is is the number one uh, fan of Mary that was inspired by her life. Oh, there you go. Yeah, oh, there she is. That's so cool. Oh, and while we're talking about throwing her hat up, please tell the story of the woman in the frame because I love this story. Yeah, yeah. I can remember that story. Okay, there's um, a woman yes, captured in the frame when Mary yes. ran into the street in Minneapolis. Yes, yes, okay. yes, yes, yes. Um, it was just uh, she wasn't planted there. It was just a real person, person that was in the middle of the street, and she just, when Mary, the director said, Mary, look, why don't you just, we're, we're doing the opening sequence here, why don't you just go in the middle of the street there, just, just throw your hand up. You know, so she went into the middle of the street of like a bunch of regular people, they weren't extras or anything like that, it was a real street moment, and this, they captured this woman, you know, looking in horror, and then Mary was running into uh, the middle of the street and throwing up her cap and she didn't find out until years later they found that woman and they connected <laughs> with Mary at one of her, her book signings and Mary finally said well why did you look so you know so 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 in a horror of, of what was happening she goes because I thought you were you know gonna kill yourself <laughs> 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 just adorable. And she goes, hey, Herbie, I'm not going to be able to do this because I can't remember. I was just looking at my handwritten notes, but maybe you'll be able to. Somebody, I, I, I don't know if they were talking to one of the male characters from Mary Tyler Moore, but they, they drew the parallel between working on the Mary Tyler Moore show with The Wizard of Oz and all of the characters that uh, were in The Wizard of Oz played out on that show. Can you remember specifically the connections? 
Like one person was the Tin Man. One per oh, Lou Grant was the Cowardly Lion. The Tin Man was Murray. Murray was Murray. Tin Man was Murray. And then Ted was the Man Without a Brain. Ted was Ted was the Scarecrow without a brain. And Mary was, you know. The Wizard yeah. of Oz. <laughs> Dorothy. <laughs> Dorothy. She's Dorothy. And, but I thought that's brilliant because if you just look at their characters and they just sort of all come together. Yeah, and maybe... Oh, yeah, that was the great thing about the show is everybody had a character that they could identify with in one way or, or another. I mean, Valerie Harper, God bless her, used to say that Mary um, was the person, Mary Richards was the person that every woman wanted to be, and that Rhoda was was the person that every female was. I don't know if I would say <laughs> it that way, because to me it feels like it's the same. It's like the, a Ginger or a Marianne. I always <laughs> knew I was a Rhoda, and I'm proud to be a Rhoda. I think there's a lot of people who are proud to be Rhodas. Yeah. And you know, you just kind of have to know your lane and, and like own it. <laughs> yeah, and you know, and and Valerie and Mary. I mean, gosh, Valerie was a scene stealer. I mean, it's all there's to it. And she, I guess at one point she was going to leave the show uh, because ABC or NBC or one of the other networks was interested in giving her her own show. And that's when they said, no, wait a minute. You know, we'll do, we'll spin you off in Rhoda. Um, oh, so, and, wow. really? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, that's wow. pretty much how that happened. But I think that there was, and there was talk that there was jealousy between Mary and Valerie. But again, we're talking people who loved each other, who worked with, with each other 20, nearly 24 hours a day, seven days a week. There's going to be, you're talking egos, okay? Artistic egos. There's always going to be issues, but they didn't hate each other. But there was some, a little bit of jealousy. And, and going back to the Marion Rhoda thing, the TV movie, when Rhoda, or when Valerie was actually partnered um, with Mary on that film from a production standpoint, she wanted more say and more partnership and Mary refused that and that's one of the reasons why the, the film did not become a series as well. So there were some issues mm -hmm. with that. And then also Valerie had her husband who I think had you know was playing a big role in her career and maybe informing some of her decisions like with Valerie and Valerie's family and the Hogan family and all that. Yeah. So yeah. life gets messy. That's just yeah. what life is. So that's right. Uh, it's, it's all really fascinating. And I think in reading your book, I kind of come away with like, wow, it is kind of a miracle when something is a hit because there's so much that can go wrong. And usually something goes wrong, at of least course. one thing. And that was then. I mean, today it's even like, you know, worse with, with you know, social media and there's so many different people. Thousands and thousands and thousands more people are want to be stars or have this idea for a TV show or want to write. They've got YouTube. They've got, you know, Vimeo. Everybody's making shows. So mm -hmm. it's not unique. So you have to be more unique than ever today. I mean, there's just so much competition. You know, and you, there was competition then. Certainly. And you cite in your book so many of the different fan groups and fan sites and online locations. So what are you what have you been hearing from all of the Mary people? About my book? Yeah. Um, a lot of them love it. Um, and I think that if they, they read into it about the whole Valerie, Mary thing, they probably don't want to hear about it. You know, because Mary and, and Valerie made a point of, of, of presenting that they really were like Mary and Rhoda. They didn't want to destroy that illusion. 
And, you know, even in those days, it's not as magnified as today, but even in those days, if something would have leaked out that they didn't get along and certain things or they had issues, it would have been blown up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we try to cherish our memories, of course, and we want to hold our nostalgic <laughs> memories dear. But I think it does a disservice when you don't see the complete picture of, of who these people are because it helps to identify um, with us in a, in a, in a better way, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they, they can see that they're human, mm-hmm. that we are all flawed, that nobody's perfect. And that everybody has issues. And I really gave Mary props because she was as honest as she could be in her later years. She was as honest as she could be about those flaws and about whatever frailties or or failures that she had in life. Yeah. And And I think the trick to life is not trying to not have problems, but trying to work through them. That's why we're here. That's the challenge. And I want to know, our show is called Media Path because we get obsessed with topics and then we thoroughly explore them. So what beyond Elizabeth Montgomery and Mary Tyler Moore are you currently obsessed with? Well, I have my own show, which which took me 50 years. It's uh, then again with Herbie J. Pilato. It's a classic TV talk show that it's on Amazon Prime and Amazon Prime UK. Just went to the UK this year. So I'm very excited about that. And that really happened from the live events that I started doing, which happened because of my books, which really happened because I went back to Rochester to serve as a primary caregiver at Rochester, New York, my hometown, to serve as a primary caregiver to both of my parents. And I thought, well, if I can't have a, a TV show, at least I could write about TV shows. Um, so, you know, working from NBC, which, by the way, I want to say this, you know, I want to make this very clear. Fritz, you were always so great and respectful and kind to me and to all the NBC pages when I worked as a page. I remember you never had any airs about you. You were always so down to earth. You never, you know, did one of these when you passed in the <laughs> hall. It, you were fantastic. And we all loved you. Well, you know what? You made my day. I'll tell you a thing about the pages. You have to treat them well because they know everything about all the stars. They knew the dirt, about who was nice and who wasn't nice. They knew where all the bodies were buried in the building. But I always enjoyed those gatherings. It was a great fraternity and sorority of uh, people when we would go to those reunions. I'm I'm happy for your success for you, Herbie. I hope this book sells a lot. And are, are you working on another one? I am. I'm working on a history book, a total TV history book. Of, of what television meant to so many because so many people became doctors because of Marcus Welby and others became attorneys because of Perry Mason. And I wanted to explore that, which I kind of sort of did with each of my books. Each of my books had a running theme of prejudice, uh, Bewitched, Kung Fu, Bionics, Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman. They were cyber, cyborgs, half man, half, half uh, machine, half woman, half machine. And, you know, Kane was an Asian in a, a Western world. Samantha was a witch in a mortal world. So quirky on Life Goes On with Down syndrome. You know, he was the first character to have a disability on weekly television. So I wanted to take that, you know, and not just write trivia books, but explore what these shows meant to so many. And, you know, it's, it's a great it's, idea. It's been a gas. And I, I love classic television. I love people. I know it sounds so corny. Uh, and I and I love life, and I'm very, very uh, um, grateful for everything that's happened because I didn't do it alone, and nobody makes it alone in this world. We all need each other, so that's how I feel. Well, this is a scholarly book. It's really an amazing piece of work. Congratulations. Uh, I enjoyed reading so it. so much, Fritz. 
And thank um, you so much for being with us, Herbie. Would you like to hear my closing credits? Yes. They're, they're going to be epic. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are MediapathPodcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. I want to thank our guest, Herbie J. Pilato. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco DeManda, Mosey Masenko, John Maddox, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the Media Path. <laughs>